Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the uh, Calm Radio studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 or on 8 FM here in the Red Centre in Ubuntu Alice Springs. We're also coming to you online via our website at uh, karma.com.au. Today is, of course, uh, Wednesday, the 31st of July. We're in the very last day of July. Uh, pretty crazy already. Almost finished with the seventh month of 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Thank you for tuning in to Strong Voices this morning. Coming up on the program, uh, over the past couple of days, a law firm has been in Central Australia speaking with uh, and holding consultations with Aboriginal people about stolen wages. And now this comes off the back of a landmark decision in Queensland where the state government paid around $190 million in stolen wages in a stolen wages settlement to more than 10,000 Indigenous people. On Monday, I spoke with the law firm about what's happening in the NT with the investigations. We're going to be hearing a bit about uh, what they have to say shortly. Also, the uh, peak Northern Territory Aboriginal Health Representative Body has spoken of the vital service provided by Aboriginal health practitioners. They've got a conference coming up uh, next week. They're going to be speaking a bit about what's happening at that conference and then also talking about the role of uh, you know, Aboriginal health and talking about the role of Aboriginal health practitioners. We're also going to hear the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well, right here on Strong Voices. We're going to go to a break now and then we'll be right back. Hey, Mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. In recent times, Shine Lawyers has joined other firms investigating stolen wages of Aboriginal people in Western Australia, the Northern Territory, New South Wales and other jurisdictions. The investigations follow a landmark decision in Queensland where the state government paid a $190 million stolen wages settlement to more than 10,000 Indigenous people. During that time, the group has been looking into illegal hurdles in place that led to the refusal to pay wages in things such as the cattle industry, among others, from the the, uh, early 1900s to the 1970s. On Monday this week, I spoke with uh, Jan Sadler, head of class action at Shine Lawyers, who begins by explaining how Shine Lawyers became involved in looking into Aboriginal stolen wages. 
Shine Lawyers first got involved via our strong relationship with the litigation funder in the Queensland matter, Litigation Lending, and when they asked us to work with them on investigating the opportunity for similar claims to be brought by Indigenous Australians in Western Australia, Northern Territory and New South Wales and other Australian states. So we first got involved about 18 months ago and we undertook some significant investigations at that time and more recently recently following the resolution or the, the in-principle resolution in Queensland, we've um, upped uh, the ante and you're investigating Western Australia um, and the Northern Territory in particular with a lot more vigour and rigour. Can you sort of detail how that process was actually you know, undertaken, that investigation process? So first of all, we had to look at the very complex legislation that exists in the Northern Territory and Western Australia in relation to the retention of wages and the protectionist regimes that existed from the end of the 19th century all the way through to the early 1970s. So it's very complex leg- legislation. It involves lots of different regulations. In the case of the Northern Territory, there was legislation from the South Australian um, government in place uh, in the early part of uh, the legislation being in existence and then that moved to the Commonwealth. So it's not straightforward. Um, It's also involved getting access to information via various archive records held by either the Commonwealth or the Territory and the States, speaking to individual people, listening to their stories about their own individual circumstances of having their wages withheld and never having those wages paid to them, and also listening to the histories of those people whose family members who were the subject of the legislation have now passed away and have had um, knowledge of and uh, were able to tell us about their relatives' personal circumstances. So there's been a lot involved. We've been on the ground listening to people and their histories, and that's for us the most important part of the work we've done to date. And just talking about that that process of going to communities and speaking to people, I understand, in Alice Springs at the moment, uh, how, how is that process going to be proceeding over the next couple of days and then obviously moving into Tennant Creek on the Wednesday? Yeah, so um, from 2 till 4, we'll be in uh, Alice Springs at the Andy um, McNeil Room. Uh, that's the first um, event that we're hosting in the NT this week. Uh, we've got a barrister that we're working with uh, who happens to be an Indigenous man and a senior member of the Shine Lawyers team who are there to hear the stories of and to share information with people who are interested in what we are doing um, in relation to this particular action. Between 9 and 10am, that's Tuesday 30 July, 9 to 10am, we're at the Children's Ground which is behind the St Joseph's Flexible Learning Centre, also in Alice and again um, those two gentlemen will be there available to um, meet with. Uh, people who want to get more information uh, about what um, this involves and to take down their details if they'd like to be a part of it. We move to Tennant Creek on Wednesday. We'll be at the uh, Papaloo Aboriginal Corporation venue there from 9 to 11 on Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, we'll again be in Tennant Creek at the Patterson Street Hub from 2 till 4pm. So we've got um, a couple of 
very busy days where we'd like to meet as many people who were personally affected by this legislation themselves of having their wages held or the family members of those people who have since passed away who believe that their family members were also the subject of this legislation. Do people need to take any sort of like documentation or anything like that as they're going to these Not meetings? a thing. No, no documentation is required. At the moment, we're just collecting information and we are wanting to hear from people as to their personal situation so we can help them to identify what rights they may have. And those sort of claims that you've looked at so far, are they typically within a wide range of different sort of, uh, you know, employment places, whether it be like stockmen or fishing or mining or, or anything like that? That's right. So they, um, the people we've spoken to to date largely worked for large pastoral businesses within the Territory in particular. In other parts of Australia, some of the workers were employed in more smaller holdings and different types of businesses. But the nature of work in the Territory was that it was very closely connected with um, the pastoral estates and the missions also. So the, the, the type of work that people might have done who were affected by this is that they might have been stockmen, they might have been ringers, they might have been camp cooks, they might have been fencers, uh, labouring type work in those sorts of environments. That's for largely for the men, although we have heard of women, and this might, I must admit, maybe I'm showing I'm sexist, but I didn't think that women would be um, working as ringers and, and, and handling the stock, but apparently um, many Indigenous women did do that work as well. Um, so in addition, we have heard from people who were employed to work um, in like the vegetable gardens and closer to the property, assisting with the uh, rearing of animals that were subsequently, you know, slaughtered and 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 um, and used uh, for the for feeding people on the on the properties and in the missions. Uh, often worked in the kitchens, in the laundry, servants. Um, so all of those sorts of domestic type workers as well. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand estimates around uh, $500 million for the amount of money owed to Indigenous workers just within Queensland. Is that, would you expect that to be similar in, in other jurisdictions around the country, like the Northern Territory? Look, I've done no work in relation to what the size of any claim may be, and I was not involved in the Queensland case, so I'm not in a position at all to comment um, upon you know, the size of the claim in that state. What I do know is that they're, um, based on the work that we've done to date, many people who were affected, I think in Queensland the number to is spoken about is, is thousands of individual claimants and, you know, we're talking about money that was withheld for a long period of time. So when you combine the number of people with a very long time that money was withheld, it inevitably results in a large sum being spoken about. But it's far too early to be discussing numbers and figures and it's something that will be done down the track. So what are the next stages following these discussions here in, in Central Australia? What's the next steps? Yes. 
Yes, so there's a lot of things that are happening simultaneously. So we are at the same time that our team are in the field in the Territory this week. We have other lawyers working very hard on finalising um, the statement of claim and finalising the right person to lead this action and, and to assist in selecting that person. So there, there's lots of things that happen at the same time. We're confident that we'll be able to commence proceedings within the next few months. I don't want to give any specific time frame because it's always uh, challenging to be specific about these things. Um, but, you know, we are very confident of progressing this case and cases in WA and uh, New South Wales um, very quickly and we're working very closely with the litigation funder to achieve that outcome. Can you just elaborate in terms of having that applicant, you know, it's sort of a, a, the main applicant as part of it? What happens is that one person is what is known as the representative lead applicant who heads the case up. So that person's individual circumstances are considered by the court and they are said to be representative of all of the people who have been affected by this legislation and the case theory that we're proposing. So in Queensland, you may know that um, that person was a lovely man called Mr Hans Pearson and he was what we call the representative lead applicant and he was the person who led the case on behalf of all of the other affected group members. So we would eventually expect to have one for the Northern Territory and then one for the other states as well, yeah? That's right, correct, yes. If people can't come to our meetings, that doesn't mean that we don't want to hear from them. They can contact us via our number 131199, that's at no cost to them, that's 131199, or they can go to our website, shine.com.au, where they'll um, can find a link to the stolen wages page and information is there and they can actually register their interest online. That was Jen Sadler there, head of uh, class action at Shine Lawyers. I spoke with Jen on Monday and uh, they're currently in uh, Tennant Creek at the moment. So if you're in and around the area, make sure you, um, you know, if, and if you do have any sort of materials and want to touch base with them, you can do so in Tennant Creek or, as she mentioned, via their phone line or via their website as well. We're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country very shortly. We're going to head to a quick break, though, and then we'll be right back right after that. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this Wednesday morning. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Very happy to welcome into the studio uh, Karma's Lorena Walker and Damien Williams. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. It's, of course, time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. We'll start with you, Lorena. I understand you've got a story in regards to a uh, writer's award. Yeah, that's right, Kyle. A, a Brisbane-based Aboriginal writer has accepted uh, an award at the Sydney Opera House on Tuesday um, for her book called Too Much Lip, and she is the third uh, Aboriginal person to win the Australian writer uh, Miles Franklin Award, and she was awarded $60,000 um yeah f- uh, the like the prize money but yeah she's wow. yeah it's pretty awesome she's done she has written a few other books um, mm. um but this book in particular really is like she's just showcasing i guess the the um Australian racism that's in in the country and yeah it's called too much lip so 
yeah, if anyone comes by it, I'm sure it'll be a good read. And obviously a very uh, a very topical discussion at the moment. Obviously, you know, we've had a lot of discussions right around the country around, the, you know, the Adam Goods documentary and things like that. So, but great to see, you know, the, the recognition of, of, you know, mob within that writing space and, and her winning that award. Yeah. Uh, on to you now, Damien. I understand you've got a story in regards to uh, unpaid wages. Yeah, um, this story by the ABC uh, shows that uh, the real cost of unpaid wages to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over three decades could be up to $500 million as there is no compensation element or settlement or an interest component um, that analysts claim. A consultant to the class action Aboriginal Affairs uh, Specialist, Dr. Ross Kidd, estimated the real cost owed to the workers was almost five times more than the agreed amount. Um, And Dr. Kidd uh, did an estimation with Peter Beattie um, uh, and was actually mentioned in Parliament of $500 So, and just to clarify, this is talking in Queensland, isn't it? Yes, this is in Queensland. Um, the Queensland government settled the long-running stolen wages case uh, for $190 million on Tuesday, with thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people seeking to recover wages earned over three decades. Um, and lead claimant uh, Hans Pearson, 80, said it was only by chance that he was able to obtain documents needed to move forward with the class action after his, stum- son, his son stumbled across them in, a, in the dump. So um, wow. you know, lucky for him to be able to find those documents. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, and I think other, other um, states around the, around the country are gearing up to try and yeah, that's do right. something so similar as well. People may have heard, if, if you're listening to the, the, the front end of the program, I did speak with Shine Lawyers. They're currently in Tennant Creek today, mm. speaking with people just about hearing their stories, whether it's, you know, for themselves or any relatives that may have, uh, you know, the stories about whether or not they had, uh, you know, unpaid wages and things yeah. like that. So they're, they're going around in other jurisdictions as well and speaking to a lot of people. So definitely something that's going you know, to continue having discussions. And it's really important as well because, you know, um, with those missing wages, uh, the intergenerational, um, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, inheritance and stuff like that has just mm-hmm. gone out of families now as well. So it's, it's a pretty hard thing to think about. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Damien, Lorena, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank, thank you. you. We're going to head to a quick break now and then we'll be right back. I'm on Darren Pedersen and you're listening to Cam Radio, Strong Voices on 18 FM. AMSANT, the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory, will be celebrating 25 years of health leadership at the Our Health, Our Way Conference in Mbantua, Alice Springs, which will be taking place from the 7th to the 8th of August. Uh, The conference will feature presentations on things such as closing the gap, youth justice, child protection and building a sustainable Aboriginal health workforce. Carmis Damien Williams uh, recently spoke with uh, John Patterson, the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance NT, as well as uh, Wayne Campbell, uh, the manager of Inginja Mayo Health Clinic, who's also an Aboriginal health practitioner, and Kim Stanton, who's also an Aboriginal health practitioner, and she's the team leader at the uh, Congress at Lara Pinta Clinic here in Alice Springs. The first part of the interview is going to hear uh, Damien Williams speaking with uh, John Patterson from AMSANT. The Aboriginal community-controlled health sector nationwide, and more specifically here in the Territory, have been going now for 
45, 46 years. I think Congress uh, celebrated, I think, their 45, 46 years of operations here in the Northern Territory. One of the oldest um, Aboriginal community control medical services around the country. I think they uh, were established as a health service uh, at the same time as Redfern Aboriginal Medical Services and the Kimberley Aboriginal Medical Services in, um, or the Brahms Broome Regional Aboriginal Medical Services located in Broome. So they're the three uh, oldest Aboriginal community control health services operating in this country. The sector has that track record of, you know, coming up to now almost 50 years of uh, delivering a comprehensive primary health care service model to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in this nation. So we've always advocated strongly that services and programs that are designed for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be delivered by Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, and that's including uh, the health and wellbeing services which um, AMSAND and our members provide here in the Northern Territory. So we're celebrating AMSAND 25 years next year. It was five years ago we had a spectacular 20-year and Congress 40-year celebration five years ago here in Alice Springs. And rightly so, because this was the birthplace of AMSAM, our Aboriginal health services that were established at that point in time, and I think there are about half a dozen here in the Northern Territory, came together at a meeting here in Alice Springs and talked about how can we better work together, plan together, coordinate services, activities, and make sure that we've got a really strong alliance between those Aboriginal medical services that were established at that point in time could get the maximum outcome, that could advocate, could lobby, you know, funders and governments to uh, expand and get more Aboriginal community control services established here in the Northern Territory and nationwide. So um, it's always fitting that we come back to Alice Springs in Central Australia to celebrate those significant milestones. And this is our 25th, so next week we're talking about a whole number of things. Uh, How do we uh, work and collaborate with attempting to close the gap? That'll be uh, a session that Pat Turner, the NACHO CEO, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO, Pat's a local hour and a woman here, born and bred, Dallas Springs, and she's the CEO of our National Peak, so um, she'll be speaking at the conference. We're going to have uh, presentations on youth justice, child protection, building a sustainable Aboriginal health workforce in the Northern Territory, and this is where Kim and uh, Wayne, you know, are critical, critical to this particular item, because the Aboriginal health practitioner is the frontliner. You know, they're the people that our mob go to in the first instance, you know, when they're feeling a little bit sick, needing medical care or advice. So there'll be a session on how do we strengthen that, particularly the Aboriginal health practitioner profession. It's a declining profession here in the Northern Territory, sadly. It's an ageing profession, you know, and a lot of our old mob, you know, that have been around now for a number of years do want to retire and or semi-retire and go and enjoy the rest of their lives with family and, and friends, etc., So we want to look at strategies and plans about how do we strengthen, how do we encourage more Aboriginal 
particularly school leavers, uh, that's where we want to focus predominantly on. But there are other people out there that I'm sure if they that are willing and wanting to become an Aboriginal health practitioner or a nurse, the career path is never ending. The end goal is obviously doctors or surgeons, you know, in the clinical field. There are others that want to just remain Aboriginal health practitioners and I'm sure Kim and uh, Wayne will give us, you know, uh, their personal views on those sorts of things. Community workers, uh, we need people there engaging with community between health clinics, making sure people come and attending to their appointments, you know, specialist allied healthcare appointments and their regular health checks, you know. If we're going to close the gap, that's where we really need our mob, preferably our mob locals that are engaging, liaising with uh, community members and other patients that need that uh, diverse range of health care that our member services provide and um, hopefully we can reduce that closing the gap. It's the life expectancy gap. You know, Aboriginal men here in the Northern Territory are still dying 17, 18 years younger than non-Indigenous men elsewhere. And that's just not acceptable, you know, this day and age. And they're dying from preventable diseases and this is where, you know, we need to, and I believe the best clinicians to encourage our mob to go and have those regular checks and keep up their regular appointments are our Aboriginal workforce, you know, and that's where we've got to concentrate the effort. That's where we've got to make the investments and acknowledge the valuable uh, work that our Aboriginal health practitioners do in this space. So um, other areas will be looking at health research. Is it relevant? Is it community driven? We're concerned that a lot of research is is done, you know, without any consultation, any input from Aboriginal communities. It's irrelevant at times. So we want to make sure that research that goes on in the health and well-being space is relevant to our mob, so that we we know where we can invest, make the financial investment, and where to turn our attention to. Um, and what does an Aboriginal community control health service looks like look like in the future? You know, and we'll have a panel, a great panel. We've got a great lineup of experts, including Pat Turner. Pat Anderson. Pat was uh, very much a uh, health leader at that time when AMSANT's first discussions of establishing AMSANT, an alliance with all those medical services, way back in 41, 45 years ago. So Pat's going to be present. Uh, we've got our local Aboriginal health service CEOs, Donna Archie. Uh, Barb Shaw, who's also the chairperson of AMSANT and the CEO of Onion Any Health. Nigel Morton, Nigel from Umbladoch, he's the chairperson out there and cultural advisor for Umbladoch Health Services. And Monica Robinson from Pinnaby Homelands Health Service, who uh, a number of years experience as chairperson. So you can see that our model, our governance model, our model of care is all about empowering and, and giving responsibility, allowing our Aboriginal clinicians and other workers to take responsibility, giving them the the green light to, hey guys, you can run with this, you know, you don't have to keep coming and asking, but it's, it's yours. How, how can we best deliver those services? What sorts of programs that we can come up innovatively and create good, attractive programs where we get our kids coming and wanting to come and get health checks, our uh, middle-aged, adolescent, youth, and more importantly, our elder territorians, you know, that we really need to, like I said, that closing the gap, you know, that life expectancy we're very lucky if we go beyond 50, you know. I'm 60, I'm lucky, um, being an Aboriginal male, because those statistics don't, you know, aren't in our favour. So um, it's important that we encourage, like I say, and get the message out there. 
provide the support for our Aboriginal clinicians in those health services to really make a difference for our mob. And, John, I was just wondering as well, like you're saying, having our mob be at the front line of Aboriginal health services, how important is it of breaking those barriers down when it does come to talking about health? As we know, a lot of Aboriginal people, you know, get shamed to talk about health, Mm. stuff like that. You know, how important is it for breaking those barriers down? And that's exactly why it's so critical and important that we look at the Aboriginal health practitioners or our Aboriginal work force in those health services because our our mob will feel more comfortable going to our Aboriginal health practitioners and doctors and nurses we have those in those clinics to talk about their problems but first we've got to get them there you know I'm frightened to go to the doctor at the best of times. You know, I've got to be dragged, kicking and screaming to go and see a doctor when I'm crook, you know. But when I get there, because I go to Denola Dilba Men's Clinic, other Aboriginal men are there, good doctors, Aboriginal health practitioners, they see me, they do all the checks. And then I go and see, you know, the doctor on, on call. It's a really relaxing environment that I go to. I, I'd suffer from white coat syndrome, eh? I go to mainstream GP service and I tell you, the blood pressure's gone through the roof before I even walk in the door, you know? Because mm. I know I've got to go there, you know, and they got to do God. various tests and all those yeah. sorts of things. So this, just the personal stress that it puts on an individual, you know, can be eliminated and reduced by our Aboriginal health practitioners and Aboriginal medical services offering that safe, culturally appropriate environment where all the appropriate uh, health examinations and, you know, things that need to be taken, blood pressures and sugar tests and all those sorts mm. of things. So very important, very critical, and that's why we've really put in a lot of emphasis and uh, importance on on the Aboriginal health worker profession. That was uh, John Patterson there, the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance, NT uh, AMSANT. We're going to hear the second part of that conversation uh, right after this. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. If you missed the first part of the uh, last uh, interview, we're hearing from uh, John Patterson, the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance NT, uh, AMSANT, and they're going to be celebrating uh, 25 years. They've got a health conference, Our Health, Our Way, coming up in Mbantua, Alice Springs from the 7th to the 8th of August. Uh, Karma's Damien Williams was speaking with John Patterson. Damien also sat down and spoke with uh, Wayne Campbell, the manager of Nginja Mayo Health Clinic here in Alice Springs, and Kim Stanton, a Aboriginal health practitioner uh, is also who's also the uh, team leader at the uh, Lara Pinto Clinic. And that brings us to Kim Stanton. Kim, you're an Aboriginal health practitioner, team leader at uh, the Lara Pinto Clinic. Can you tell us a bit about how you got involved and uh, you know how long you've been a practitioner for? Uh, I was born and raised here in Alice Springs. I was asked, I've been an AHP for eight years now. I was asked by my mum years before that twice. I said no. Um, the opportunity came up again the third time and I said yes, I guess, and this is where I am today. I studied, I did my certificate for an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander primary health practice through Congress's education and training branch and was fortunate enough to get a position at Congress at Gap Road Clinic. So I've sort of worked through other different areas and programs throughout Congress and now I'm at uh, the satellite clinic of Larapinta Clinic uh, doing sort of team leader role as well as working in the clinic. 
we'll go to Wayne now as well, Wayne Campbell. Um, you are um, an Aboriginal health practitioner as well, but uh, you, you're managing you're manager at the um, Nginja Man- Male Health Clinic? Yes, Is that's that correct? Right. That's right, Dave. Can you tell us a bit about uh, your journey, Russ? I lived uh, in Perth for a number of years, um, and over there I was working for the Salvation Army. I, I got a, a really good feeling out of helping people. So when I came back here, I saw the need for male Aboriginal health practitioners. So that's what I wanted to get into. I had a lot of family who were already health practitioners. So looking at what they've done over their time and and helping our own people, that's what I decided I wanted to do. So I, like him, I'd done my training through Congress with the training program uh, there. We've done ours at the same time. So I've been a practitioner for eight years as well. But I get a lot of enjoyment out of helping people. Um, Sometimes it's not always uh, enjoyment. Sometimes it is a bit sad and frustrating but you just got to push through those times to get to where you want to be i have a saying that uh doesn't matter how much things burn or hurt you still got to get up and try uh, and that's just the way it is yeah so i uh, was in education uh, before i came into the male health clinic as as a manager in between that i was doing education in schools and doing clinic stuff as well uh, then i had the opportunity to come into the men's clinic and help run that down there which is really good, yeah, yeah. loving it. No, it is It is a nice space down there, and it is very welcoming. Right. <laughs> so thanks. Um, just wanted to ask as well, what have been some of the challenges for you both? Well, I guess every day is different. It can be challenging but also rewarding. And the best thing about it is we get to sort of uh, help our mob come through the health service and provide more information, education on their health. And I've seen little kids grow from, you know, giving their first immunisations to, um, to you know, young adults now. So that's the rewarding part of our my life, I guess, as an AHP. And I look forward to many more. Uh, mine is, uh, well, you know, we need to get more people in to have the health checks and stuff because, you know, we need to make it very clear to people that your health is very important. You only get one life and you've got to look after that. You've got to look after your body. Our body's like a car. If there's one part that's not working, your body's not going to work properly. So we need to get every part of our body working properly and we need to keep it that way to stay healthy. But we do need you know, to encourage more and more people to come in for their regular health checks at least once a year. Another thing that's running rampant here in Central Australia at the moment is STIs. You know, six, seven years ago, we had very little STIs here in the Northern Territory. Now we have a lot. There's there's a lot going around. So it's a simple test. You just come into any clinic, um, wherever you are, go into any clinic, and we can do a simple test and we can get that cleared up straight away. I've been always been fascinated by thinking a bit about the old rule about um, health practitioners in general not being able to treat family. Now, Aboriginal people, as you know, have a lot of family all over the place. I was just wondering how does uh, how do Aboriginal health practitioners sort of get around get around that barrier? The one thing is, yes, we do come from big families and there's always going to be that time where you can't sort of put them through to somebody else to see. But the one thing you've got to remember is every patient is the same. You've got to hold that level all the time um, with everybody, whether it's family or not. But the one big thing uh, we've also got to 
be mindful of is confidentiality. So when you come into the clinic, it is confidential. What happens in that clinic room stays between the practitioner and the, and the client. So that's just the one thing that I think people have this thing of going into a clinic and because we live in such a small town and we have big families that it might get out there but what they've got to remember is that we are under a confidentiality thing and we can't go and disclose any of that to anybody unless they say that we can. You just mentioned as well a bit about uh, education. Do you think education is one of those things that we really need to work on as well to get you know the information out there about just getting coming in and getting a check definitely um educating people on the importance of of their own health is one thing once you're in the clinic you know don't be scared or or stressed to come in because like i said before you know the quicker we can pick something up if there's something wrong the quicker and the better we can try and fix it the health area is very broad we're here to help as much as we can culturally appropriate education resources are important and we can always find you know information that's uh, we can hand out to the families to be able to get better outcomes with their health so you know we're here to you know try one of our you know uh, to, is to close the gap so it's one of our important roles and we only hope that our workforce can uh, get bigger and get stronger and just finally just wanted to ask like you were saying before john the health uh, congress and brahms and redfern health services for aboriginal people have been around for a very long time how do you think or why do you think that is how, how do you think that they have stayed for such a long time sure look i i think the successes the features of being successful organizations and these organizations are multi-million dollar organizations we're not talking about 10 20 million dollar organizations here these health services run very broad diverse range of programs and services and are responsible for large funding budgets and i believe while we have been successful over the 50 years coming to 50 years is because we have Aboriginal, the Aboriginal health leaders in control, making those decisions at local community level. For example, the Congress Board of Directors, uh, predominantly all Aboriginal people, you know, and they may have a couple of non-member directors who may be non-Indigenous, but overall, the majority of board directors on Congress and other boards, you know, the AMSANT board, for example, the one that governs AMSANT, are predominantly Aboriginal health leaders. The other feature is making those decisions very quickly compared to government bureaucracies where you could wait weeks and maybe months to get decisions. Within our sector, those decisions, of course, we have very small, it's localised. You know, like I said, the governance structure is predominantly localised as well. Uh, So decision-making is very quick and we can get decisions turned around within a matter of days uh, if there's pressing diseases that have broken out across the community, across the territory. For example, the uh, bird flu, I think it was, was a big threat for our mob in our communities because of the. it was a fairly serious disease, eh, that bird flu, uh, the one that came from overseas that threatened our communities uh, if it got in and affected the, the population. So we were able to quickly respond to that. Our Aboriginal health practitioners, our governance you know, board of directors were able to put in strategies and measures to quickly respond to how we were going to treat 
or put up the prevention against uh, our mob coming or getting seriously ill from this disease. So local decision-making, policies, designs, they're all designed and the creation and innovation of strategies to hopefully get our mob to come, like I said earlier, to our clinics to get the appropriate health checks. I believe that, that they're some of the key features well, we've been successful over those coming to 50 years now. But the sad thing is that it's plateaued out now. I mean, you know, the funding investment from uh, government has plateaued out, whereas previously we saw a, you know, we're really making inroads on uh, the life expectancy gap, but that's plateaued out. So we've really, if there's one call that I make today, it's to call out to governments to seriously look at the financial investment for expanding our primary health care services and that includes the workforce. We need the appropriate and skilled workforce to ensure that we provide, continue to provide that very effective, comprehensive primary health care service model to all our mob. And in some, uh, I might also emphasise that in some parts of the uh, Northern Territory, we'd not only provide that care to, uh, to our mob, but also to, in some of those remote clinic areas of the Northern Territory where there, there aren't clinics or medical services available, our mob go out there and do the checks on pastoralists and others that might be residing in different regions throughout the Northern Territory. It's also offering services to the mob uh, right across the, the Territory and ensuring that everybody has access to uh, the appropriate medical health service and you know, more and more specialist care with all the cancers that are starting to come to the fore now and that's getting much bigger. Sexually transmitted infections, we've got to get on top of that. And this is where Aboriginal health practitioners play a really important role. Our mob would prefer to go and see these mob, you know, in the first instance. And um, I just want to echo the, the importance of that STIs. And for those that it's, like it says, you know, it's a, uh, what is it, a blood test nowadays, I, I think. Yeah, that's right. So you, um, we have, for a simple SCR test, you um, you can do a wee in a jar, yeah. which we have to send away to be tested yep. as well, um, and just taking a little bit of blood just mm. to make sure exactly what things are. And it is it is confidential and, you know, very safe uh, process. So we've got to get on top of this issue. We just strongly put the call out there that uh, those that haven't had that safe culturally uh, test for STIs, can you please go and have that at your nearest Aboriginal medical services and um, the appropriate action will be will be taken by our clinicians. Strong voices. Get your